Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. For this episode, I'm pleased to introduce Doug Furstenberg, principal of Stonebridge Associates. Doug uh, grew up in New York City and then moved with his family to Princeton, New Jersey, as his dad took over uh, the CFO road of the university. His father uh, formed partnership with a fellow by the name of Ken Sweet to develop uh, the Forrestal campus near Princeton University. And Ken became Doug's inspiration and his mentor and eventual partner. So the story is interesting. Talks about that. We talk also about um, uh, how he's looking at the current crisis, the pandemic, and then we get into his the evolution of his company, which actually evolved from Ken Sweet's inspiration as he became his partner and then broke up the company and he formed his own company in Washington after uh, leaving the Philadelphia area where he'd started. And his company's now evolved to being one of the largest and most respected mixed-use development firms in the region through various uh, ins and outs that we talk about. So he's gone through all the crises and and come out the other side and is optimistic, as you'll hear, about what we're dealing with today and how we will come out of it. Doug has a uh, strong interest in the community. He's been involved with Montgomery College. He's inspired many people that work for him and uh, has has developed a a very strong reputation in the marketplace. So without further ado, here is Doug Furstenberg. Good morning, Doug. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, My pleasure, John. It's great to be with you in this new virtual environment. Yes, (laughs) it's ongoing. Hopefully, we'll be through this uh, in due time, and I appreciate it. So, Doug, tell me a little bit about your role at Stonebridge and kind of your day-to-day activities as the leader of the firm. I'll be generic as opposed to what my day-to-day activities uh, <laughs> used to be as a, a month ago. Day-to-day activities today are, you know, wake up, walk the dog, and go sit in my sunroom and do virtual meetings all day long. But um, my, my role at the firm is to, you know, as the principals, to kind of help guide the overall direction of the firm, which is kind of a generic role. I I think my specific role is to uh, help motivate and direct all the folks at the firm so they're doing the best they can, they're growing personally, and then also, you know, I'm very involved in the creation of our projects. I mean, it's one of the things I love to do, which is to focus on what can we do with something? How do we do it differently? How do we do it successfully? Uh, you know, and really try to create something different out of a project. So I, I really love to get involved in the conceptualization of the projects and teeing up our teams to go out and do great work. That's great. So we're now obviously in a, in a time that we 
I don't think any of us have ever been in before, at least uh, unless you are over 100 years old. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm curious uh, what your perceptions are of this crisis in context with other downturns that we faced, uh, you know, particularly the early 90s, the 2001 9-11 crisis, which some, some people think is somewhat analogous a little bit, uh, at least in the Washington area and New York, and then the 2007-8 financial crisis as well, and what your thoughts are. Sure. I mean, I, without question, this is different. I mean, I, I chuckle out of this one. I'm 59, and I never thought of myself as elderly, but I found out through this crisis that come October, I officially become elderly when I turn 60. And all that means is, you, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. So one of the stories I tell is when I first joined my old firm in 1982, I didn't know anything. But I helped close a loan at 12 and three quarter percent, five-year <laughs> five year mini-term loan. Yes. You know, so when you've been doing this for, for this long, you think you've seen it all. Um, and what we all know, as you know, John, is you've never seen it all. But this one's just completely different. And the one that I point to is, you know, for us as a seismic difference was in 0809, you know, we were all worried about things over the summer of 08. But when Lehman went down in September, the world really crashed. And the world wasn't functioning. You know, the banks were locked up. In September of 08, we were undertaking our biggest project, Constitution Square, 1.6 million square feet under construction, $440 million of loan term sheets, and they all went away. And so we spent 13 months cobbling together $330 million of debt and had a financial partner in Walton Street that stuck with us, put the capital in, but you know, for months, Things didn't function. I mean, the banks were locked up. You know, people couldn't make commitments. Now forward to today, in particular for Stonebridge, we've got three major construction projects underway. Our partners in those are Montgomery County, two extremely large state pension plans. And, you know, every month the money comes in. And, you know, one of the things we do is I actually, in today's world, you call them and uh, thank them or email them and thank them for funding, even though that's what they should be doing. You know, I can remember when people didn't. And so today's world is so different because the Fed seems to have done a great job. The system's functioning, but the, the economy is just, there, there is no economy right now. No. There's takeout restaurants. I mean, when you start looking at major industries like airlines, hospitality, and retail and wonder what their future is and if there's a future, uh, we've never been through something like that before, because even in 08, 09, we were worried as a firm of whether we would survive, you know, whether, whether Stonebridge, because of our, just our exposure to projects at that particular moment in time, you know, honestly wondered whether we would survive. You, you knew there would be opportunity. You knew you would get through. And today we're going to get through it. But the risk out there to massive segments of, of the economy you know, we're going to get through this too, but it's hard, it's hard to understand where we're going to be. You know, I thought Bill Collins and I did a BizNow podcast. I think Bill made a great point. In three years, I know we're, you know, we're going to be doing well again. How we get through the next few years, 
I, you know, we're all going to be learning. There's no book on this. You know, economists love to look back to project the, uh, use the past to project the future. We don't have any past. Uh, as you said, if we're not born around in 1918, you know, none of us have been through something like this and it's just different. So, you know, out of all this, out of crisis comes opportunity. And I think there will be that, but we're making this up as we go along. A little later on, we're going to get into uh, the market and your perceptions there. I think that, you know, I want to try to get into what you think is permanently changed in the marketplace. I'll be kind of curious as to what your thoughts are, particularly in the retail and hospitality sectors, which in my view will have long lasting and probably permanent changes to it. And perhaps even in the office sector as well. The only area that I don't see too much change, frankly, is industrial property. In fact, that may change in a, in a positive way instead of a negative way uh, yeah. to some extent, but we'll see. So, uh, Doug, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about your origin story here. So, where did, you, uh, where did you grow up and where are you from? And tell us a little bit about your family and your, some of your influence as a child. I was born in New York. Other than a four-year tour of duty when my dad was working for the federal government in the Kennedy administration, grew up in and around New York my whole life. Parents actually were, uh, grew up in the same building in Manhattan, 101 Central Park West, and didn't know each other. Wow. So, so as a child growing up, four grandparents were all living on this 10th floor of 101 Central Park West in different wings of the building. Honestly, I had, I had an idyllic childhood. Uh, one of the 60s, you know, you lived in the suburbs, parents commuted. You know, my favorite story of growing up was uh, my grandmother took very good care of the doorman at 101. And <laughs> when the Macy's Day Parade would start and we could hear the music because my grandparents' part would face the park, literally the floor spoiled to pick her grandchildren would go down to the elevator and Manny the doorman would have four seats saved on the um, front row on Central Park West. And wow. Pick our grandchildren would go down and watch the parade. Didn't have to wait. Got the front row seat. You know, so I, I had a pretty good childhood. And probably one of the biggest changes for me was when I was in middle school, we moved to Princeton. And there was lots of things that came out of moving to Princeton. My dad went to be the CFO at Princeton University. And professionally, it led to my career through a project he did with my mentor, Ken Sweet, huh. and, and also just growing up in a college town in that era also was just, it was, it was just a great opportunity. And, you know, the friends you make and the lifestyle you live and the influence of education and my, both my parents were, almost all of their careers were involved with educational institutions and not-for-profit institutions. Big influence in my life. You, do you miss Princeton? I, no. I, I mean, I loved Princeton, but, you know, quite frankly, my mentor, Ken Sweet, and my dad really transformed Princeton with the Princeton Forest Hill Center Project. And Princeton's just a different town. It's a small college in a small town surrounded by corporations everywhere. Right. You know, so that town is not a town you can go back to and think is the same. You know, so for me, it was a wonderful period of time. I actually have a bunch of high school friends who are still there. Uh, uh-huh. a, a couple of them in their parents' houses, and they still love it. But uh, for me, it, it was a wonderful period of my life. But, you know, I've been here for 30 years, and, and for me, this is, this is really home. So 
I'm grateful for what Princeton was. I was very grateful for Princeton for not accepting me to go to the university because that's really what I wanted to do. And that would have not been leaving home. And so I was rejected there and took my lacrosse stick and went down to uh, Duke University, which was, you know, I think it's very important to have changes in your life. Right. And, and so to go to Duke and really hardly know anybody there and, you know, start on that journey, you know, was great for me. And it's, in, it's interesting you went to Duke because my, uh, my younger son interviewed at both schools and actually attended Princeton. And, cool. and Duke, if you walk, if you close your eyes and open your eyes if on, on each campus, I could, I, I'll bet you, you wouldn't know which school you're at because they're, this, the architecture is almost identical. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's a reason for that. There's a story behind James Duke wanting Princeton, but well, people can go check that out, but there's, there's a reason for that. So yeah, I went, I went to school in the South and looked like everything I've been walking around for most of my middle school and high school life but you know it's important to have changes in your life and to and yeah. to learn to adapt and quite frankly my sister one of the smartest people i know went to princeton so she would have been another two years ahead of me and she was uh the highest undergraduate award is called the pine prize and she won that so f- continuing to follow her for another four years would have been pretty brutal so yeah, uh, going off and doing your own thing and really what i joke that uh my degree at duke has worn pretty well and my varsity letter has worn better because we were we were a competitive but not a great lacrosse program and now you know people look at you and they say you play lacrosse at duke and they think you must have been some you know know, godsend of lacrosse and now far from the truth but a lot of the foundations in terms of what i've done in life are really in large part at Duke. And, and I had two really important experiences at Duke besides the friendships. One was being on the lacrosse team. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, I, I, we made all of our kids, the requirement for all of our kids was to play a high school sport. Because I think it's important to be on a team. Mm-hmm. Because when you work, you're on teams. And so, you know, a lot of what I learned were the goods and the bads and the ups and the downs of being on a team. And the other thing I did it. Duke was, um, I was a public policy major. And there are two reasons that was uh, just phenomenal experience for me. One was the faculty at that time was a very new area. So the faculty was extraordinarily young. And they were incredibly engaged with the students. And so, you know, you really were friends with your professors. What drove your interest in that, in that field? Because I like I like the professors. I mean, it wasn't the, the under. I thought I would be an undergraduate business major. Duke got rid of it uh-huh. uh, my freshman year because they needed to get the accreditation for the master's program, mm-hmm. and they they didn't want to require you to take too many classes in mm-hmm. one area, which is mm-hmm. what the undergraduate program would have been required to do. So I, I was just kind of forced to look elsewhere. A family friend ran the department, and I took a class and just loved it. And it was really about the teachers. And if I look at my grades at Duke, uh, when I liked the teacher, I got a really good grade. When I didn't like the teacher, my grade (laughs) might not have been remarkable. A great lesson that I learned, you know, about life. And the other thing public policy, at least at Duke, did is really taught you how to think and make decisions. And, you know, why I don't draw decision trees in my business life, you know, you are making decisions and you're making calculated decisions. 
And so thinking through how to make a decision and how to articulate a decision, because you had to write policy memos and you had to present them. The bookending experience by being on the lacrosse team and being a public policy major at Duke and quite frankly experiencing another culture, you know, being in the South, really were very transformative for me. So I, I think the luckiest thing that happened to me was Princeton rejected me because I'm I got me, and I'm sure I would have gone. I was friends with most of the guys on the lacrosse team, and it would have been easy. So uh, I thank Princeton for being smart enough to take my sister and also smart enough not to take me. <laughs> That's great. So, you know, you're, did the public policy aspect of Duke uh, kind of guide you or shift in your thinking towards the real estate sector, or did you come out thinking you were going to be in public policy when you were done at Duke? It had nothing to do with how my career evolved. I, I had always thought I would go into business, but again, strategic thinking seemed like a good idea. And I did know myself well enough that if I didn't like what I was studying, I wouldn't study very hard. And what really, you know, I'd always thought I'd go to business school. That just, you know, I'd work a year or two, go to business school, thought I'd go back to New York because that's where I was from. And my senior year, great family friend and Ken Sweet, was his daughter was a freshman at Duke, and my dad got called and said, Ken's coming, he wants you to go to dinner. And Ken had a firm in Philly called Ken Sweet Associates, and the friendship there was he worked with Ken and my father worked on a couple very cool pioneering projects. They met when my dad worked at the Ford Foundation, and Ken did some work for the Ford Foundation, then at Princeton. Ken really helped create Princeton Frostwell Center with my dad. And then the relationship continued. You know, so honestly, one of my strategies with my dad was during the summer when I would ultimately go to business school, I'd go work for Mr. Sweet for the summer. So Mm -hmm. Ken comes to Duke in, in March, I think it was, and we're out to dinner and Ken was having a few drinks and you know, more or less looks over to me and says, Allison says you don't actually go to school here. The only thing she knows you do is play lacrosse games because <laughs> she, she, she can see and read about those. What are you doing now? And I said, well, you know, I'm applying to business schools. I don't really know what I'm going to do. You know, I want to, you know, hopefully maybe take a year and go coach lacrosse and, you know, then go to business school. And he said, well, why don't you come work for me this summer? So I said, oh, it sounds like a great idea. So I called him two weeks later and said, mm-hmm. Ken, are you interested? He said, yeah. You know, why don't you come work for two months? Uh, how much did you make last summer working for, I worked at an ad agency in New York. And he said, I said, $200 a week. He said, sure, fine. 200 bucks a week, eight weeks. Why don't you come June 1st? So I show up June 1st. Ken's not in the office that day. And, you know, this is 1982. It's not mm-hmm. easy to find people when they're traveling. And nobody knows that I'm coming. Nobody knows why I'm there. <laughs> Now, the good news is I'm Paul Furstenberg's kid, so at least people can you know, triangulate that Ken must have said something to Paul or Doug, and Doug's here. And it literally took most of the day for people to figure out that I was only there for eight weeks for 200 bucks a week. <laughs> and back in those days at 5 o'clock, you know, the staff would leave and the partners would start having a couple cocktails. Sure. And I, and I was told... Uh, Whatever version of high-fiving you did in 1982, they were doing because they realized that Ken hadn't hired me permanently, and it was only 1600 bucks. So 
how bad could it be? Long story short, uh, I had a bartending job in New York, great restaurant for the fall, and I was going to go coach the Crossway in the spring, and then I was going to business school. That was my plan. The guy who ran the bar and the restaurant in New York goes to my grandfather in July and says, Mr. Picker, never not hired an out-of-work actor or model. He was a former model. And he says, I, I can't hire Doug. So my fall plans went away. And so I mentioned it to one of the partners. And they said, well, if you want, why don't you just stay? And I said, what do you mean? Said, well, we like what you do. You want to just work here? So I tried to negotiate a salary of $20,000 a year. <laughs> they offered to pay me seventeen five. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and in essence, I've never left. Because Stonebridge Associates was uh, one of the four parts of Sweet Associates uh, when it broke into four pieces in 1993. So really, essentially, I've had one job. Uh, might have done a few different things, but essentially, I've been at one firm since 1982. So uh, if one feels like you've lived a charm life, I think I've lived a pretty charm life. That's pretty impressive. So uh, what did you do uh, when you started up? Were you a project manager or just kind of a gopher? Or what did you do? You know, how did your career evolve uh, for well, week? And this is why my career path, for lots of reasons, is not one that you can follow. So in 1982, there's no such thing as an analyst. Right. And the next youngest professional at Sweet Associates was 29 or 30 years old. So I'm 21, no training. But they... You know, it's, you get to do what everybody else does. Sure. So my first project was running a marina on the Eastern Shore called Great Oak Landing, which is still there. One of the firm's partners bought a boat and the firm bought a marina. And it was awesome for a 21-year-old because, I mean, I got to make decisions. Yeah. You know, when will we open the marina? When would we close it? What do we renovate? And the firm, the, the marina had been losing money for five years. And the first year I got involved, we got to break even. And it was because I cared. I mean, it wasn't because I was brilliant. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. But, you know, that, prior to my involvement, people didn't want to be, you know, who wanted to work on a marina? You know, people <laughs> wanted to work on Princeton Forestall Center or, or sure. invest, investment projects. Or uh-huh. The firm had a venture arm. That had, the first investment they'd done was ESPN. You know, so who wants to work on this stupid marina? So I worked on that for a couple of years. And then the real change happened when I was 24 and an associate left the firm and she had been working on a massive project in Chicago where we were investing with a wealthy family in a huge office building in Chicago, 600,000 feet. They just decided that I was the only one who could deal with the developer, personality-wise. So 24 years old, about to turn 25, go out and work on a 600,000 foot building in the middle of Chicago and figure it out. What were you doing for them? For the, I mean, what, what was your we, we were the equity. So I was, you know, I was the asset manager uh-huh. for the project as I mean, we, we didn't know the titles back then, but you know, essentially I was representing the 95% investment partner and in the finishing up, overseeing the construction mm-hmm. of the office building and the lease up and the financing. Who was your partner and which project was it, out of curiosity? Our partner was a crazy guy who I loved, Wiley Tuttle. He was out of New York. Sure. Um, the building yeah. was 150 North Michigan Avenue. It was the Stone Container. It was the Associate Center originally and then the Stone Container building. It's 
claim the fame is it when, when we later when we were working with uh, U.S. Equities and Management, Bob Wizzle came up with the idea to light the top of the building. So it's the diamond-shaped building that has sure. lights at the top, and we used to do things. You know, Lily had to do it all by hand, but it, we, we we would do go bears <laughs> and things like that. And uh-huh. so, you know, you was, were, it, was it on was it on the river or very close to the river? It was overlooking Grant Park and with direct views of the oh, lake. Grant Park, okay. Oh, and one, so one of my one of my favorite memories of marketing was, you know, obviously if you had a lake view, you could get a rent premium. And as I joked, you'd watch the brokers talk about a building and an office in the building that looked west, obviously not towards the river. But if you could look at a reflection in the glass of the building across the street and it reflected the water, they would call that a water view. <laughs> you know, so you, know, you, learn, you learn a lot of lessons in your life. And that was... You learned about brokers at that time, didn't you? At 25 years old, you know, I'm a little naive and I'm listening to this pitch and I'm going, okay. That's so funny. And, and that, that, you know, that opportunity, you know, people would be crazy to let a 24, 25-year-old Dude, obviously the partners kept, you know, a really close eye on everything I did. But you learned a lot at that on that experience. Though. Well, I was the one who went out every week. I mean, the yeah. partners didn't go out a week, so I'm in the office with Wiley and wow, you know, going through stuff. And that's great. And you know, so you just, you know, it was an incredibly unique opportunity. You know, and, and you look, look, we ultimately gave that billing back to the lender in 1990. One, three, or ninety-four. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. We just, you know, it, 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 it obviously didn't turn out too well. And you know, you learn, you learn your biggest lessons from your failures, of course. And the one I learned on that one is the real estate didn't love me, but I loved it, and I was way too determined to make it succeed. And you know, when the building had actually done okay, and we financed it well and turned it around, and then you know, you, you talked about early 90s, we hit the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And we had, you know, some tenants in hardship. And we made a deal with one of the tenants who had been a phenomenal partner and they agreed to expand. And so we had this really complicated restructuring in place with our lender. And, but we were threading the needle. And mm-hmm. then the company hit a bump and packed down on the 50,000 foot expansion. Mm. And, you know, we couldn't survive, no. you know, and, and the, you know, lessons you learned is the margins were too thin. And sometimes, you know, you got to, whether I was in love with the building or too determined to think that no matter what we could succeed, mm-hmm. I probably, you know, was too emotionally involved and not as analytically critical. Sure. And, you know, so I learned all kinds of lessons. And you can imagine being in your 20s and single and going to Chicago. And you know, being stay at in nice hotels and the rest of it, it was it was all in all phenomenal experience. That's great. So, how, how did you evolve your the vision? You, you said there were a few broke up into into a, four different groups to become Stonebridge. Describe how that evolved. So, in the early nineties, you know, their suite associates had grown to fifty some odd people. Ken, you know, is still one of the smartest men I've ever known, but, you know, a business plan and we don't need one of those. We'll just figure it out. 
And there was just there was just friction between him and some of the other senior partners, bluntly. And I mean, and the, I, I remember going down the hall to talk to Ken uh, when this was all happening. I was 31. And Ken said, what do you think? And I said, Ken, I think if you leave, the entire firm will stay together. And, you know, I just, I think that's keeping everybody together and you'll be fine. And he looked, looked me right in the eye and he says, you really think it's that simple? And I went, yeah, I, I, I can't. I, it's not simple, but I think it works. And he said, okay, I'm going to leave. So he left, and obviously it wasn't that simple. And, you know, then you have an economic crisis as well. And the firm didn't make it a year without Ken. And basically it, it had four business lines at that time. Uh, we were the Washington office, and we were uh, with myself and Ellen Miller in Washington. Which Ken, Ken had sent me to, to Washington years earlier because he wanted to get me out of, from under his wing, bluntly. And Ellen. Was there had, a project you focused on when you came to Washington initially? Yeah. Ellen had come down and she was working on a project for McDonough School, a, a mini Forest Hall campus. We, we worked on a major camp, uh, camp, office campus development by the school. At Georgetown? Uh, no, McDonough School in Baltimore. Oh. Okay. But Ellen wanted to live in Washington. So I see. Okay. <laughs> which I was, which when I followed her down, I was totally fine with too. So I had moved down in 80, I had moved down in the fall of 87. Actually, the day I moved down, I got engaged to my wife. Oh, okay. So we'd been down working on projects in, in DC and I had taken over responsibility for the wealthy uh, families investments, including the building in Chicago I talked about. So, you know, moved down to 88, things are great. 91, Ken leaves the firm. And as I said, maybe Ken wasn't a problem because we, as I said, we didn't do real well without dad. And we didn't make it a year. And then we spent about a year breaking the firm up. July 1993, the Sweet Associates name goes down. Stonebridge name goes up. Ellen and I are starting our own firm. Uh, the Stonebridge name came from my wife, actually. Back then, everybody was a rock or a stone, was big in names at that time. Mm-hmm. So her idea was stone made us sound substantial, even though it was four people <laughs> at Stonebridge. Yep. And bridge, because when we started the firm, we were in two businesses. We were doing the investment management for this wealthy family and real estate deals. And we were doing a lot of advisor work for educational institutions. So So were you doing development activity, uh, just asset management activity, a combination of both? We were doing land development and we were doing asset management. We we hadn't built, vertically hadn't built a thing. We had been equity investors in vertical development. Got it. But we had not. Mm -hmm. So we started the firm in 93. Um, My wife was pregnant with our second kid. Had a whopping $300,000 in capital to start the firm. Because that's all, all I had for half. <laughs> you know, I became a partner in the old firm in 87. And as you can imagine, the deals that I did in the first three years basically became tax bills. They were not very good deals. Um, it was a tough era to start new investments, mm-hmm. 88, 89. Didn't make substantial equity. We had learned mm-hmm. a lot. So we started out and we really, you know, hindsight 2020, we didn't spend as much time on investments then 
which would have been a spectacular time in, you know, 93 to be investing. But we were worried about paying the bills. Right. So we spent a lot of time building a consulting practice for educational institutions with their real estate. Mm. And it was a passion of Ellen's and a passion of mine. Both my parents were, as I said earlier, in education and, and also in not-for-profits. So for me, I didn't want to work in that world, but to be able to help that world mm-hmm. was just phenomenal. And so we built a very big practice. I mean, Ellen really did a lot of it, but we worked for Duke, University of North Carolina. Our biggest client that really helped transform us was the, was the University of Virginia. And because you asked about development, our original assignment was uh, doing a joint project for Virginia Tech and UVA to get their Northern Virginia location, mm-hmm. not to be confused with sure. what's ha- happened in the last 20 years since then. But we were, we were running the site selection and the negotiation of a development deal, which KBG was the ultimate developer of, for a joint project. And out of that, we worked a lot with a man named Leonard Sandridge, who was the COO of UVA. And he called me up one day and said, Doug, I'm, I'm watching what you guys do. And you know, we've got these research parks down here, and, and we're, just, we're just struggling. Would you guys come down and talk to us about it? So. Ellen and I trot down, and at that point, the UVA Foundation was Tim Rose in a small little office called Booker House next to where Leonard's office was. And that spawned a 10-year run that really helped transform the firm because it took what we had been doing, the land development, which is what we originally helped UVA with, and to create their research parks and get their entitlements because John Ello how close you are to universities, but as you all know, most universities, the town gown relationship is not no, but it's not great. the friendliest. No, I mean the local one here is to watch. Obviously, you know the challenges at GW and, and Georgetown with their neighbors. So UVA had you know similar issues in terms of what they wanted to do and what the town wanted them to do, and we actually were able to get plans approved that had not been approved previously, and, and really kick off their research parks. And probably one of the transformative things was, so we hadn't done any vertical development. The first vertical development we did was in 94, 95. Jane Mahaffey, who's still one of my partners, joined us. And we built a 10,000-foot warehouse in Connecticut. So that was the first vertical development at Stonebridge. And Jane was in charge of that massive project. Um, <laughs> was that <laughs> university-based? or who was No, your it, was, it was a friend who had a, warehousing business oh okay uh-huh. we didn't want to be involved and he just said i don't really care i need your help mm-hmm. and and you know really went okay we did it for about two years and said, we got to stop this is <laughs> not what we do but we built a ten thousand foot warehouse but when when we did all the work for uva they had some need to build some buildings and they didn't want to build them with the facility staff so they trusted us we had never built a building and we went and built a series of 60 or 65,000 square foot buildings at the UVA research parks on a fee mm-hmm. basis. And, you know, that's, that was the first time we did something vertically. Uh, so, you know, 10,000 feet to 60,000 feet. Those are office buildings? Office and research buildings at, at UVA. 
like uh, scientific research or was there anything specialized about the buildings? Um, one were sci- uh, it was a little bit of science. Uh, other was a pharmaceutical research, but it was more dry lab. It wasn't high. high. It was really just people who wanted to co-locate with the university. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we would neg- help negotiate the leases and then built the buildings. And so, you know, we had a wonderful decade run with the UVA. And if you go down and look at where the foundation is now, where the board's head, you, you look back to the days when you showed up at Booker House and Tim Rose is by himself. It was a great one. And that's the stuff Ellen and I loved. I mean, the, the, the challenge was the consulting business was hard to maintain as opposed to the development work that we so this is all fee development, fee development activity, and so they hired the contractors and everything, or you hired the contractors right. on their behalf. We, yeah, it was yeah. pure, it was pure fee development. We did all the, you know, we did you know, 98% of the work, hired the architect, hired the contractors, but we had no equity investment. We had no equity role. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a great way to learn and to get comfortable that we could, you know, handle vertical development because until you've done it, it, it's pretty daunting. Yes. I mean, my God, you're going to build buildings? I mean, how does that, how does that work? I mean, the old firm did it, but I wasn't involved in that aspect. You know, so well, if you do land development, you watch people build a lot, but we hadn't really done the vertical. So that was really, you know, a, a big change for us. But the biggest change in terms of becoming a developer really came about through a relationship with the Chevy Chase Land Company and the New Orleans building and the two Bethesda Metro Center. So how did that situation start? How did you develop that relationship? Well, I mean, this is, you know, one of the lessons you learn is it is about relationships. And so I didn't know the Chevy Chase, I knew of the Chevy Chase Land Company, I didn't know the Chevy Chase Land Company. But uh, my wife was on the board of hospice, uh, Montgomery Hospice. As was Ed Asher, who at the time was president of the Lancaster. Yes. Uh-huh. And we're at an event somewhere, and I'm talking to Ed, and he said, Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to do this, the new owns building. But, you know, we're, we're looking for debt, maybe a partner. I said, What? I said, we're, we're looking for debt, maybe a partner. And so I went, Hmm, can we look at it? And he said, Sure. So I, you know, pick up. You know, the numbers from them, and we had been building a building in Atlanta with our wealthy family. We were not, the, we had hired Heinz to help plan it. We ultimately did a joint venture with Cousins, but we weren't the developer. That was in Atlanta. So here was this opportunity to come in, and, you know, you're dealing with this, you know, 100-plus-year-old company that's got a nice portfolio. So we came in as an equity investor and had, had a relationship with TIA Craft, and they came in as a lender. And that's exactly what the land company wanted. As it turns out, the land company really wasn't a vertical developer. You know, They were using fee people. And as the project evolved, it became clear that maybe we should take over the active development in the land company went, you guys actually want to do that? We're fine. You guys do that. Wow. That's so, a great opportunity. So we brought on a, another partner, Kevin Casamano, who was actually a team man of mine at Duke who had worked at 
Shushan companies and mm-hmm. at Miller and Long and at Bechtel. Sure. And we, you know, as the building was probably on the third story, I think, in terms of pouring concrete, we took over the construction management, which you know, had not been part of the business plan. Project was a big success. We released before we finished. You know, we, we were able to turn things around and deliver on time and on budget. And then the land company was getting ready for the redevelopment of Chevy Chase Center. And so we said, why don't we do it again? And the land company, you know, Gavin Farr, who was the yes. chairman and family, and had said, well, the difference here is, you know, we've owned this land forever. We don't want a partner. But if you want to run the development for us, we'd be fine with that. And, you know, if you look at our track record at that point, we've built a few buildings for UVA. We kind of built the, the New Orleans building, but not in the classic fashion. Mm-hmm. And here was this opportunity to be the development manager of a 400,000 square foot, very complicated mixed use project. Mixed use project. Mm-hmm. And we said, we'd be happy to do that. And so, you know, suddenly, you know, you've got a track record of the New Orleans building and the track record of Chevy Chase Center. And while, you know, that's somewhat of a track record, it's not, I wouldn't call it a massive track record, but it, you know, it put us in a position where we could then really look at doing significant development work. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, that was kind of wrapping up an old friend, George Karras, was moving back from New York because he uh, decided living in New York and living the Blackstone lifestyle was probably not great for his health. (laughs) (laughs) George is the hardest working man you know, but the Blackstone, they work harder than anything. And they wanted to raise their kids back in D.C. And George said he was going to get an office downtown. I said, George, you don't want an office. We got a spare office. Just, Just hang out here for six months. How did you know George? How did you meet him? I met George in 1988 through an attorney in LA who I had met on a deal and we were using. And when I moved to DC, he kept saying, you need to meet George Karras because George was in DC at the time with JMB. And he kept saying the same thing to George. And it was like, we never, never got together. Never this. Then one day Steve calls up says, I've got to put you on hold for a minute. Sure. And he made a conference call with George Karras. So I'm in Bethesda. Actually, I, I back then I was, we were downtown actually. So I'm mm-hmm. at 2445 M Street. George is over New Hampshire Avenue. And Steve says, okay, this conference call will last as long as it takes the two of you to make a date to get together for breakfast or lunch. So that's how I met George. That's great. So dial forward to, you know, 2004, 2005. George is going to come hang out for six months. Because I said, if you're, George, you're going to live in Potomac. Your kids are going to go to school here. You don't need to be downtown. You'll have a better quality of life. And there was no thought that we would do anything together. So after six months, we agreed we'd start looking at things together. George's wife, Sue, who we all know from the business, and I and my partner, Ellen, all knew that some form of a relationship made sense. George is a little more thorough. Let's put it that way. So it took, it took George about 18 months to figure out that some formal relationship makes sense. 
So it took a while, but uh, we formed Stonebridge Karras in 05. Uh-huh. And that led to our Constitution Square project. So that's probably the next big pivot in the farm. Because so before Constitution Square, we've done some fee buildings for UVA. We could claim development of the Newlands building, but you know, we weren't the original developer. And we've done Chevy Chase Center. And you know, at that point, Chase Point's coming out of the ground. But we got the entitlements for Chase Point, which was right across the street from Chevy Chase Center. Doug, could, could you quickly uh, explain, give a little bit of backstory on George? I mean, oh, I, sure. know George, I know George quite well, but I'd like you to, uh, I mean, I met him in 1990. You know, I was at the Saw Company, and okay. uh, we were struggling at that time, as many people were. Oh, yeah. And George with JMB was uh, in the wings looking at the strategic vulture opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so he and I met about a center that was we going to go on the market. He was real eager to get it and uh, didn't get it because uh, Mr. Saul was able to re- renegotiate things. But anyway, tell, talk a little bit about George was a partner at JMG, JMB, I think, at one point. That's right. No, George, George went to JMB in the early. Um, and actually, for, for the listeners, explain what JMB is uh, as well. Okay. A little bit of history there. And then that evolves to your current partner, Walton Street. So maybe talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. So JMB was huge real estate firm out of Chicago. Of the three initial folks, the one I knew was Neil Bloom, not well, but you know, I got to know Neil well later, as you said at Walton Street. We'll get to that. JMB was a massive investor. They, they, you know, way ahead of their time. I mean, they, those guys were so smart. They were doing huge tax shelter funds or right. funds. Pre-86 tax shelter deals. Yeah. Correct. They were pension fund advisors. Mm-hmm. They bought the urban mall folks. I mean, they were just massive real estate investors of all shapes, sizes, colors, way ahead of the curve in terms of creating an independent company to do these kinds of things. George joined them in 1981, I think it was. Actually, actually, he worked for someone who went to JMB. His first job making one was with, uh, with a bank, and he was in the Florida, down in Florida working for Ira Shulman. Ira became a partner of JMB and a partner of Walton Street. So Ira joins JMB, they bring George on board. And George really, when JMB was at its height, and probably when you were dealing with him, George was a portfolio man for a large part of his responsibilities for the Pennsylvania State Employees Retirement System. I think it was, I don't think it was teachers. And George was at that time in Washington. And, you know, George has always been a brilliant investor. I mean, he can make a deal on a good market. He can make a deal on a tough market. He is as thorough as you can be honest, genuine, straight, and tough, which is a very difficult thing to balance, quite frankly. He's a master at pulling all that off. So in, I believe it was in 93 when you were working with him that the JMB partners decided to sell the platform. And so they sold it to Heitman. And so certain partners stayed at JMB under employment agreements and certain partners left. 
know, so 93 is a tough time. Yep. As we were just talking about. So George signed, signed on with Heitman. And it was just different. I mean, JMB was very, you know, entrepreneurial and Heitman was, you know, a more corporate environment. And one of the senior, senior partners at JMB who left was a man named John Schreiber. Right. He went to form Blackstone. <laughs> and he went to form Blackstone. Yes. And lo and behold, a couple of years after forming Blackstone, George exits Heitman and goes to Blackstone and was a partner at Blackstone. Very successful. Did Steve very well. Silverman actually hired Schreiber, I think, didn't he? Well, uh, what, I, yeah, Steve, I, Steve brought in John, as I understand it. John was a partner in the real estate business. Right. Right. And, and, and help create and grow the business. Mm-hmm. George came in as a true, you know, partner in the, in, in the real estate business at Blackstone. I think John was, you know, half a step removed in terms of his partnership in the real mm-hmm. estate business. And, you know, that Blackstone, back Blackstone platform was growing like crazy. And George was there as it was really growing and doing phenomenally well. But the size of the deals, that Blackstone was doing, you know, we kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And George is a detail guy, you know, so uh, I think George bought the Hodges portfolio, which was multi-million square feet of industrial in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And as the legend tells it, George walked every single building. Mm-hmm. That's hard to do at the scale that Blackstone right. <laughs> was, right. evol- was evolving into. And so, I think in the early 2000s, that's when George was going, okay, I have, I'm doing business one way. We don't want to raise the kids in New York. Right. And, and he really came down originally to be Blackstone's DC operating partner. Mm-hmm. Even today, we have one of our projects with Blackstone. You know, so that relationship has continued. But when George came in office with us, he was really there to be Blackstone's operating partner. And you know the cycles were different. The opportunistic Deals in 05 were development deals, right. not, not buying existing buildings. And Blackstone didn't like development. Still, as best I can tell, still not a big fan of it. So that's really where the merger of Stonebridge and Cares made sense. We were, we were clearly developing. The market was looking for development. And George had capital relationships that, you know, were just different than ours. And so we, we joined up together, reformed Sturman's Carriage, and then the first really big project was Constitution Square, which life goes full circle. Our capital partner there was Walton Street Capital, right. which was formed by Neil Bloom and several of his colleagues from JMB who did not go to Heitman, including Ira Schaldman, who was the one who hired George mm-hmm. in, in his first banking job. Mm-hmm. You know, so. For, for the young people listening, life is full of relationships. And keeping good relationships and keeping in touch, you know, is what makes a difference. A, for me, it's fun. And B, it's very good for business. So, you know, the, the real trans, the next big transformation for Stonebridge was Constitution Square. Because Constitution Square was going to be a two and a half million square foot mixed use development. And... You know, when we did the tour with Walton and they wanted to know, can you guys really do this thing? You know, we took them to the site. They liked the site. And then we 
drove the van by our Bethesda projects. Had you won the job at that point, or was this just uh, were you bidding at that time for the for the project? We had it under contract, and we're finishing up due diligence. And so, you know, Neil came in. You know, I had been. You know, I had been. Jay Weaver had been. I mean, lots of the other partners had been in. But you know, Neil for an investment of that size, Neil's coming in. So you know, Neil comes in and. We don't have enough time for the, the stories. The, the sure. Legend, legendary stories. Was about. the DOJ lease in place at that time, or was it? No. Okay. We were we were buying the land on a speculative basis. Right. Now we were targeting the GSA, mm-hmm. but we were just buying up. We were just buying the land. For us, I mean, they had immense trust in George. Basically, if George said that he could do it, they believed him. Right. But, you know, even they said, okay, so who's this Furstenberg guy? Who's Stonebridge? And can we at least see something they've done? So we, you know, you know can, you, can you show me what these guys have done? I want to see. You know, and so when you can drive and buy Chevy Chase Center in New Orleans. Those are impressive projects. You know, it, it checks boxes for people. So we start Constitution Square. And the original plan is to build the first phase. And we've gotten the commitment from Harris Teeter which we thought was transformative for the project. I mean, I'm a, kid for, I'm a kid from in and around New York City. There's a Christie's or a little grocery store at the bottom of every building, it seems like. I mean, so it's, it's logical in an urban environment you do a grocery store. Now, in 05, this is a novel concept. I mean, we're not doing this in 05. But we reached out to Teeter. They saw it. They understood Noma, and they also understood if they didn't go in early, they would never get the footprint for their store. Was this their first urban project, uh, Doug? It was their second or third. In D.C.? In D.C. Okay. So, so, so they at least had an understanding right. that, that, you know, I don't think anything had opened at that point, but they had an understanding, and they knew, they knew the demographics. Mm-hmm. So when we closed... On Constitution Square, we had a handshake with Harris Teeter, and that was what was important to us. Why them and not Safeway and Giant? I mean, did you talk to the other grocers as well? We did. Um, Giant was looking at a site with Guy Stewart, but we also felt that Teeter was a, you know, quite honestly at that time, Teeter was a was a better brand. Mm-hmm. You know, here was this really cool, high service, glistening store from the South, and so we thought they were a better brand. What was your vision for the project other than office? Uh, it, was, it was to do residential. It was to do half office, half residential. Okay. Uh-huh. And that's why we thought the grocery store was critical for the residential, but it also gave us comfort that we would do more retail so the office could succeed. Mm-hmm. So the original plan was to do the Harris Theater, a very big residential phase to get the project out of the ground, and a spec office building of 300,000 feet. Lo and behold, as we're planning that, the DOJ solicitation comes out for 521,000 feet, to be exact. Our competition is people like Boston Properties and Trammell Crow. There was this broker named Darren LeBlanc that no one had heard of. And Stonebridge, which people had heard of, but who, who, who are you guys? And lo and behold, we win. It was source selection. One of the biggest reasons we won was the Harris Theater and the residential. Interesting that the government wanted to move in. They didn't want them to be in another Southwest. They wanted to be in a mixed-use environment. So lo and behold, we win. We signed the lease in March of 08. As I said before, we started construction. We had 
lender term sheets. We had to go through an appeal period. And then Lehman happens with 1.7 million square feet under construction. Did you have a construction loan at the time? No. We had equity from Walton, which we were putting substantial equity in. We had term sheets, but we hadn't closed the loan yet. We were in the process of getting ready to close. But you know, you, back then, you, you didn't do commitments. You, you did term sheets, and you went and closed. Right, right. Uh, we ultimately had one bank honor, and it had, happened to be the bank for the spec office building, which we would have never replaced. And so we got that closed and paid off an $88 million land loan. Wow. And got no funding. Wow. Uh, because the spec loan didn't require funding yet. I mean, that's how good a partner Walton was. And that's where having a Neil Bloom and an Irish Holman, people have been through it before. People understood it. And as I've always said, they looked at us when we paid that land loan off and said, we know you can't fund your pro-rata share, put money in. October of 08, I'm not putting money anywhere. I mean, right. I'm, I'm trying to, I, I don't have any money. I don't want. <laughs> <laughs> and so we go to them and say, we'll put another million dollars of our own cash in the deal. And they went, done. And never restructured on us, never tried to take anything away from us. So that was personal capital from them. That was probably not fund capital, I'm guessing. Is that correct? It was personal capital from George and I and the other partners. They right. wanted our money in the deal. They didn't care about anything else. They wanted to know we were vested. Skin. So skin, more skin in the deal. Got it. And once we did that, they said, we're done. Let's just go do this together. Because I've already said, if we had to fight a two-front war, if we were fighting the banks and the tenants and the construction and worried about Walton Street coming after us, which the documents were in their favor, let's not kid ourselves, we would have never succeeded. It's funny. I was at a DCBIA function with George about that time. And I remember he was under construction. And I, I looked at him. I said, George, so uh, how's the financing going on that project? <laughs> he gave me a look like, John, we don't have a commitment yet on the construction loan. I said, oh, really? <laughs> he said it was an uncomfortable time for you guys. Yeah, it was, it was miserable. I mean, and, and the truth was, as we cobbled together the loans, you know, they, you get approval and you go, let's, let's go into closing. And they go, we'll get to it. No one was in a hurry. You're in a hurry. So, but, you know, you learned a lot of lessons. And you know, lessons are great partners in good real, and great real estate will succeed. That's and great. Because we had a great partner. We ultimately succeeded. You know, we ended up leasing the spec office building in the GSA. We've built out the residential, and you know, the last component was a 834,000 square foot lease for the Department of Justice. Because while when we won the first deal in 08, the group that was supposed to come would not come. They refused to go to Noma, so they put a different group in. And ironically, when we won the last lease with the DOJ, the original group has now moved to Noma happily, thrilled about it. But the original group refused to come. So, so they, put a, yeah. they put a different group in. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, now that Noma is a great place, when we won the second big DOJ lease, they came smiling and happy as could be. Your experience prior to this had been office, and then you'd done the retail, of course in Friendship Heights, the Chevy Chase collection. But 
this is the first residential project you had done. So t- talk about, you know, how you did that, how that differed from your commercial development. And uh, how did you uh, learn that, to, how to put that together? There are a couple of things. One, George had bought a lot of apartments. Had, had, had development, but he bought a lot of apartments. So George was familiar with the apartment business. Two, we had across from Chevy Chase Center done a project called Chase Point, where we did the entitlement, and it was supposed to be an apartment building. And we were going to do that. So that was a few years earlier. We decided to go condo with that project. And I said, we can't. Our first project as a condo doesn't make any sense. It's too hard. So we ended up uh, joint venturing Chase Point with Monty Hoffman. Mm -hmm. Very successful project. So 08, 09 come, things are still. How did you find Monty? How'd that happen? I just called him up. Really? Okay. So I've heard about you. I know you looked at the site before. You want to join venture it. And you know, we had a great 10-year run with UVA. We had a great 10-year run with Chevy Chase Land. We had a great 10-year run with Monty. You know, we've done a lot of venturing. You, you know, two organizations working together for decades, a pretty long time. And so Monty, at that point, 0809, things were slowing down. So we actually took some of Monty's, Monty's people and embedded them into our team to help do the residential so that way we could execute learn the business and, and made everybody more comfortable with us doing the residential. So, you know, the development of the first phase of residential at Constitution Square was a, the team was a combination of Stonebridge folks and PM Hoffman folks. And that really, you know, we needed to learn because the one thing I, you know, if you're an office or a commercial Think person, you think the business is hard. How hard can it be doing residential? Now that we have done everything, it's much harder to build residential. <laughs> I mean, you're finishing every single unit, and you're right. finishing. Constitution Square had sixty out of had sixty different types of units. Oh my goodness! Because you know, even though they're close to the same, they're not exactly the same. They're flipped, or they're lefts, or they're rights. Right. You know, so there were pet. You know, Construction is great when it's repetitive. Construction is not so good when it's not repetitive. Residential buildings are not repetitive. No. And so it's just hard. I mean, and you finish it. Well, at an office building, quite often we'll do the corn show and we don't do the tenant work. Mm-hmm. You know, so the planning is not harder. The conceptualization is not harder. I mean, they're all great, take great specialty and creativity. The execution of residential is just harder because your your unit sizes are smaller, the number of units are much right. higher, and you finish you finish every element of the bill. So you learned a lot from Monty in, in this process. Absolutely. Monty was a phenomenal partner. We learned a lot with him on Chase Point. Mm-hmm. Learned a lot with him on Constitution Square. And you know, the other big win of that time period was Lot 31. Right. I mean, you know, Constitution Square clearly put us on the map. Who are these people? The next big win was Lot 31. And in Bethesda. In Bethesda. Mm-hmm. You know, how often do you get to come in after Federal's done such an amazing job right. creating Bethesda Row and have the main corner be available to develop? So we went after that, and I called Monty up and said, Monty, let's do this together. Let's, let's joint venture this. There's going to be a condo building. There's going to be, you know, I don't know if it's all condos or not. There's retail. We know the county. Let's do this together. And we're all in, and we're trying to come up with a different idea. And 
I literally go to the movies with my wife and I, I stay in at the intersection and I one night and I come up with this crazy idea and I call Monty the next morning and say, Monty, come meet me at the site. He goes, what? Just, I don't know how to do this, but I know the answer. And so we literally sit there at the corner of Bethesda and Woodmont and came up with this idea not to close Woodmont, which is what everybody wanted to do. Right. But right. DOT was picking the winner. It was a Department of Transportation selection. I haven't met a transportation guy who wants to close a road. No. And Woodmont's critical to the, the traffic. Well, that's the whole purpose of Woodmont's creation in the first place. There's a, bi there a bypass. <laughs> it was a bypass to Wisconsin, right? Yeah. So we came up with this idea not to, to temporarily close the road, but still build a big parking garage underneath. underneath. Right. And to relocate in a way that could create two different development buildings. Well, you replaced what a, a, a thousand space uh, surface parking lot or something. We, like we that? replaced a three, it was three hundred spaces and we replaced it with a thousand space garage. Oh, okay. Uh -huh. But the, the old lot to the east of Woodmont was too small. So part uh -huh. of this was you had to you had to re, re adjust the intersection A to make it safer, but B to create a second development path. Mm -hmm. So we did that near the Darcy and the Flats. And that was the project in my mind that finished the view of who are you for us. Because everybody in town, big and small and out of town, went after that project. Mm -hmm. And when Stonebridge and P.N. Hoffman won it, you know, on top of our success at Constitution Square. Yep. At that point, I, you know, we felt we could look at folks and say, you know, we aren't, we aren't who we're not. We understand that. We're not as big as a lot of the big guys but we can do a big project. Mm -hmm. And that really, you know, set our course to be, uh, you know, I was joking, so I'm glad they came up with this term, urban infill mixed-use transit-oriented developer. Right. I didn't know what the hell we were doing, but it seemed like a good idea to build on the red line. It's logical, right? So, and that's what we do. And what I really think we are is great plate, great placemakers. That, that's my personal opinion. If you ask what we do really well, is we make great places. And every place is different. Bethesda's not Noma. Noma's not the waterfront where we did a you know, project for the district. It's not Carlisle Crossing. You know, so you've got to be able to adapt to your environment and to what's going to be successful. And so that's what I, you know, if people say, what do you do really well? We, I, we make great places. And I'm really proud of the places we've made. So your, your, your business plan then to some extent now is you have a scale that you're looking for and a certain chemistry of a site that you're looking for to, to go after, to pursue. And do you bring your relationships to those deals, in essence, those opportunities as you're looking forward? So that's kind of your lens today to look yeah. at transactions? Okay. Yeah. I mean, we, do, we, have, we have two business lines. One is this mixed-use development, whether it's redevelopment or new development. And, you know, we, we can buy land, we can partner with landowners. I mean, we're very flexible in what we can do. And then we are significantly invested and in staying invested in our GSA platform. I mean, we've done millions of square feet of GSA leasing. We understand it. I think the folks at GSA trust us a lot. You know, so our purchase of 5001 Eisenhower last year, we're doing some redevelopment to make that a better place. But the focus there is really executing a business plan to make that work for the GSA. 
you know, sort is that of an existing lease with GSA. Or is it? No, that's the empty building. It's five thousand one is known as Victory Center. Uh huh. Previously, okay. You know, the building it's been empty for seventeen years, and so we bought that last year with Rockwood, uh, one of our newer capital partners, and we're in the process of selling off one of the parking lots for townhouses, and now engaging to get GSA to lease the building because it checks all the boxes for GSA. And as opposed to the source selection days at Constitution Square, it's technically qualified low bid. It's interesting because I think that was Spalding and Sly that developed that. And correct. Uh, that's correct. They took a long time to do exactly what you're trying to do. So I'm, I'm wondering if it's market timing or just uh, fortune or what, what do you think is the, is the rationale now? Why you think you can do it and they couldn't? Well, I mean, we have a different basis. And if when you're in a technically qualified, low, low cost world, you can be responsive to that. So we've put together a compelling economic position mm-hmm. for a very good building in terms of its bones. The bones check all the boxes for GSA. We're going to add some retail. We're going to add some residential. Yep. Not technically required for the GSA, but why make their jobs harder than it need to be? Oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, so I mean, sitting in a building with 12 acres of service parking is not no. great. Looking down at the parking I need, beautiful townhouse development, townhouse development will help bring a little more retail. Mm-hmm. Suddenly you transform the area, right. the city supportive of it. You know, so we now have more arrows in our quiver uh, than the, you know. You know and, and if you own something like that, deal fatigue is a hard thing to beat sometimes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So let, I'm going to do a flyover of some of your other projects, Doug. And if you would kind of look at, talk uh, about lessons learned sure. on some of these projects, I'm just going to go one at a time through them, mm-hmm. you know, and you can kind of reorient me from a timing standpoint a little sure. bit and then talk about some of the lessons learned from each one. So in Bethesda, another project that you completed uh, recently was Flats at 8300, which is just at the south end of uh, NIH, uh, right at the entrance to Bethesda on the north end of, of town. Talk about, that's another Harris Teeter deal. Talk about how that deal evolved a little bit and what your lessons learned there were. Sure, that deal came to us because they were, the prior group was looking to do a condo project when the market turned on them and they're raising capital and we just made an offer to buy it. And ultimately, when they couldn't raise the capital, the financial partner wanted to sell. So the lesson there was don't just assume you can't get what you want. You just have to be patient. The other lesson learned on that was while that end of Wisconsin, the north end, looks vibrant, back in 11 or 12 when we were looking at this, you felt like you were on an island. Right. And so we felt we needed a grocery store to bring more vitality to the area. And we, again, had a handshake with Harris Teeter to put a grocery store in there when we contracted to buy it. You know, Walton Street was our partner. They bought it. We, I think we, we ultimately didn't close in three weeks, but we were prepared to close in three weeks from the handshake. That's great. Um, you know, so by having the trust in Harris Teeter, the trust in Walton Street, because when we closed, we actually, Walton just bought it. And then, because we didn't have time to do our venture agreement. And then they brought us into the deal. That's great. So, you know, the relationships allowed us to do what the, the project needed. And everybody took care of everybody afterwards. And then you subsequently sold the project. 
Yeah, and that's one of the bigger transformations in our portfolio. I mean, we did a lot of work with Walton in particular, but other opportunity funds. And some of these assets we'd love to own long-term. But if your partner is a fund, by definition, you have to sell the asset because right. the fund is going to liquidate. Mm-hmm. So there are deals we're doing with Rockwood, you know, right now, and they have a fund structure as well. But, you know, 5,001 Eyes now, we're planning to sell. Mm-hmm. You know, we bought in Bethesda, we bought the Clark building with them last year. And that's really a fix it up and sell. So, you know, you've got different partners that let you do different things. There are partners like Walton who can buy something that quickly. And so that's what happened on 8300. So it it was upfront an expectation to buy and develop and sell. Well-executed business plan, everybody was happy. You have two projects down in Alexandria in addition to the one you mentioned, uh, one at, at Potomac Yards, I yep. believe. Yeah, no, we have a project called Oakville. It's a project with Blackstone, uh, which I think is a lot of fun for George and a lot of fun for the Blackstone partners because a lot of guys who used to work for him are in very senior positions these days. And so we're right across the street. Technically, we're not in Potomac Yard. We're in the Oakville area. and we are in the approval process. Inova is going to build a healthplex, which is desperately needed healthcare provided in that part of Alexandria. And it's shot as, as my kids laugh. It's shock. It's another mixed use project. Ground floor retail, residential above, apartments that we hope to own long term. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to be selling some land for townhouses and there's a self storage building as an interim use. So great project. Good example of we're on our third iteration there. So having the right partner because originally five, six years ago, we were going to do a huge retail project. And the good news is while we could have gotten it started, we didn't and it would not have been a good place to be right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sometimes better lucky than good. And so that project we hope to have under construction mid 2021. And Carlisle Crossing is another one down there. That one's a big one. We love the Eisenhower Metro area. And have been, Harris Teeter actually years ago asked us to look at a project they had signed a lease for to see if we could get it out of the ground. And it just, it was just a tough project. So we just, but we kept looking and looking and looking and looking. And we finally found a five acre site and right next to the AMC movie theater and really wanted to build a big mixed use project because that's what you needed to do. And we needed a big grocery store. And, you know, Wegmans is the game changer when it comes to grocery stores. Mm-hmm. And we convinced them to go on the second floor, which they had only just begun doing urban stores, much like right. second, second floor stores. Right. But we actually, were, they said, if you can get our loading dock on the same level of the store, we will go up. So... For me, everything's easy because I don't have to figure it out. So I told my partners to figure it out. (laughs) And the site slopes 10 feet. And then we ramp the truck up 10 feet. And suddenly the loading dock is on the same level as the store. Wegman signs up. Phenomenal people to deal with. Yeah, my my interview with Richard Lake uh, describes the Wegman relationship he has and uh, what he did, what he's doing at City you know, City Ridge was on City Ridge, and then also what he's what he did down in Sto- down in uh, Prince William County originally with them. 
Yeah. So they just a phenomenal relationship. He says, yeah, just great people. They're very smart. They tell you what they need. I mean, they could be the most brutal group in the world if they wanted to be because of their, their, their power, but they just not, they tell you what they need. They're straight with you. I mean, wonderful people. And that's projects going to be, you know, Wegmans anchored 700 apartments, big state pension plan is our partner advised by MetLife. Just, Phenomenal relationship, one we've set up to own in the long term with them. And I think it really will trans, you know, I know you interviewed my good friend Bill Hart. He was the first. We'd done a project at Carlisle 20 something years ago, hadn't been back, our mistake. And, you know, Bill Hart's project with PTO was transformative. Mm-hmm. I actually think our Wegmans project will, will be similarly transformative because there's no there there yet. Right. There are pieces. But by bringing in the Wegmans next to the AMC, which will open and be That's huge. successful again, huge. and adding all that retail, there's going to be a phenomenal place. Right. So we're really excited about that. It's just hard. 1.7 million square feet of construction, mixed use is mm-hmm. not easy. Um, but, you know, my partners are great, and our team is great, and our partner and their advisor is great. So it, it's a phenomenal project, and we're really excited about it. Great. Let's talk about one more project, then we'll move into some other aspects here. The other one I want to talk about is Wheaton, uh, the, the project there. And I think that's with Montgomery County, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. We, it's a public, we do a lot of public-private partnerships. This is a public-private partnership where we came up with the idea to consolidate some groups lit, led by park and planning and to build them a new headquarters. They, their building is cool, but woefully outdated. Um, so we're building them a new building in the county, bringing all the other related groups, permitting, environment, folks like that, into you know what will be a, a great singular place for people to do business with the county. We thought an important element was not just to build a building, but to create a town square. So we're there will be a there there in Wheaton, in terms of you know a huge public town square right next to the metro, so they can do movies and farmers markets next to a 300,000 foot building that will be very active. And then the trade for us is we get the old headquarters in Silver Spring. That's a joint venture with Bazudo, So we really are leading the Wheaton charge. And then Bazudo is going to lead the development of a several hundred unit mixed use development. So we finished the building this summer for the county. And uh, we'll be under construction. I think we close on the land fourth quarter this year and we'll be under construction next year. So great project for everybody. A great example of public-private partnership where the county can't do those kinds of things. But for us to come in and guarantee turnkey development, create a new park, so it really will help revitalize wheat in a major way. And then us get a great development site. It's a win for everybody. Why Bazudo and not Hoffman, let's just say? Um, on this one, we've got an existing relationship with Bazudo, and they had done a lot of work on Wheaton. And so when we started looking at it, they said, hey, why don't we do this together? And Monty had this other little thing going, like the wharf or something. So oh, yeah. Sure. Was, at that, okay. time, at, at that yeah. time, he was a little busy. <laughs> Understood. Okay. Uh, I'm going to segue now into the market a little bit. And I want to use a project that you, the other project you're doing in Bethesda as kind of that, at that pivot point. 
which okay. is your the Abbaset. Okay. So, and that project has a hospitality component in it. So I want to talk about that and your vision for that site and that project vis-a-vis the marketplace going forward based on our current environment and how you think that project's going to come out over time, you know, looking at the certain changes that could be uh, evident in the COVID-19 environment we're, we're faced with here going forward. Sure. So uh, sometimes better lucky than good. I mean, look, phenomenal site. It was too big to just do his office. We love mixed use. Hotel is a great use. So we decided residential and the size of residential that we could do 120, 130,000 feet didn't make sense. So we teamed up with OTO Development out of uh, South Carolina, who we worked with before. We don't do hotels. We plan them. Hotels are operating businesses. We don't want to get into that world. But if you do mixed use, sometimes you need hotels. So you find great partners. So we've sold the hotel component to OTO. Okay. And, you know, we're building their corn shell because we have to because the building's too connected. And then they're going to finish it. So highly secure transaction, well-capitalized firm. It's all great. AC Hotel, perfect brand near the Marriott headquarters. And... Spec yeah, office then, right? Spec office. And, you know, we're, we've got a couple of tenants we're talking to. The reality is that this building, I think, is pretty darn well positioned for COVID, not that we planned for COVID. My personal opinion is people are going to have to re- redesign their office space. Mm-hmm. So being able to get into a building that is highly efficient, flexible, and can adapt is going to be a winner. And so right now, Avocet is the most efficient building. It's got a side core. Our core factor is just better than any other building in the market. We have all the amenities and we have the ability to do some fine tuning to the building. You know, we already had all the bells and whistles. It's platinum and those kinds of things, but we're fine tuning things. So, how do we disperse people in the lobby? How do we go completely touchless? We're going to make those changes. But fundamentally, the bones of the building work in pre-COVID and the bones of this building will work post-COVID. I just interviewed your architect there, and uh, he didn't get into the details of it, but uh, he's good at, at mixed use. There's no question. Yeah. So, yeah. The, David you know, Kitchens. Yep. No, yeah. Cooper Carey's done a great job and you know, done a lot of work with them. And I love David. And, you know, so we're going to adapt the building, but we don't have to change it. I mean, we're, we're looking at taking the monthly parkers up to a different lobby than the main lobby. So that way that would disperse folks. We already had destination dispatch, so people don't have to touch buttons. That building in particular, you know, we're looking at tweaking things. Will we put less equipment in the fitness center so we can space it out more? Interesting. But so we don't, we don't have to upside down the building. And I think for tenants looking for quality space that can work, because if you go to a full social distancing from the plan density, you cut down your occupancy by half. Mm-hmm. If you go from benching to true distancing. Now, I don't think it's going to go all the way to true distancing long term. But how do you get in a space where you can adapt over time and readjust if something comes back? 
That's what a brand new efficient building with lots of natural light lets you do. So mm-hmm. Avocet is actually yeah, sometimes better lucky than good or just staying on the edge. Avocet is extraordinarily well positioned for the post-COVID environment. Okay. So tell me, Doug, how you filter deals uh, a little more in detail and how would you kind of compare yourself with your other major mixed-use developer competitors like JBG Smith or Meridian or other firms like them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're we're not doing the volume that either of those do, which is one of our advantages. They're bigger firms doing more things, uh, so we can be a little more selective. And we try to take advantage of our, our brand, our expertise, and our flexibility. You know, so we can venture creatively. Um, we can give people different roles. We, you know, it doesn't have to be a Stonebridge-only project. I mean, our most recent project is a, is a Square 47, the Lamada headquarters, is a joint venture with Rockefeller. You know, so we try to take advantage of all those. And the way we filter them is, you know, we, we, we have weekly uh, investment meetings. And, you know, everyone's welcome to them. The core investment group meets each week and we, we prioritize and we, we filter through where, where the best things are and, you know, where we have the most likelihood of success so we can focus our resources. So speaking of resources, you're, you're primarily a development firm. What other services do you offer your, your customers or clients? What other, what other things do you do as a firm other than develop projects? We actually do our commercial property management, residential management. I think it's very complex. Business requires more specific expertise, you know, all the fair housing things. So we third party the residential management, mm-hmm. but we do the commercial property management. And you, you contract out your, gen, your construction. You do GC. You don't do that vertically yourself. We don't design. We don't construct. We are, you know, we're, we're, we're the orchestra conductor, as Leonard Sandwich used to describe us at UVA. Mm-hmm. We, we, don't, we don't play too many of the instruments. Okay. So you, you continue in the development phase only, primarily, is your main role. Yeah, and then we do massive asset management, even on the residential projects. I mean, we we are setting the rents. Our property managers give us advice, but we set the rents. Um, You know, we we are massively involved in the operations. We just don't do the actual residential management. So, Doug, could you uh, share with us a little bit about your uh, how you hire and also how your company is structured? You know, as far as uh, you know, uh, as a partnership, as a corporate structure. How you set that thing up? Sure. So, in terms of hiring, it's a little different by the different areas uh, that the firm operates in. On the development side, we've actually generally gone down two paths. We've actually hired a lot of architects that have worked on projects for us and brought them on board. And we started several years ago interviewing on campuses and bringing in young people. Uh, fresh out of, generally out of engineering programs, but uh, some construction programs. And we bring in about a young person on the development side either every year or every other year. And it's been extraordinarily successful. Great young people, enough technical background to really be helpful. (laughs) You got to read a set of plans. You got to understand permitting, you know, so. But that, the combination of bringing in some seasoned designed folks in combination with 
younger, you know, technically trained people is really how we've been growing our development uh, group. That's interesting because other developers and that I know and kind of look more to the financial expertise than the design, construction, physical side of things. So it's interesting that you have that perspective. It probably comes from the fact that I have no training in anything. I mean, I, thought <laughs> I was a public policy major, got a summer job, and I've never left. Right. And, you know, but our two lead development partners, James Haffey and Kevin Cosimano, are you know, tremendous. James, a trained architect. Cos, when he joined us, had all those years at Bechtel and, uh-huh. and Miller and Long. So I think the original intent was overcompensating for my lack of technical expertise, but having really strong partners in that area. And I think what we found, and that we just do a little differently from everybody else, is while some of our development folks have aptitude and interest in the financial side, what we're building is so complicated and so technical, and we're, we're very creative with each project. So we think having that really strong technical expertise in our development group is critically important. And you know, then we just embed or integrate our investment side. Uh, Kent Marquis, my partner, heads up the capital investment areas, and, and he's got a, a great team of uh, three folks, you know, Marvin Poole, very sen- seasoned, and Peter Liebman, who had been in, you know, in the consulting world for a few years and gotten his master's in real estate and joined us. And, you know, so we've got a lot of horsepower on the investment side, and they're very involved in all of our development projects. So. We just we do it a little bit more split, so to speak, than I think some of our other compatriots who kind of bring the finance right in the middle of the development side. And so far, it seemed to work. I mean, I'm not sure there's a right or wrong answer. It's just culturally, it feels it feels good for us this way. It's interesting that what you just explained, Doug, is is probably your one of your major competitive advantages. I think, and you didn't identify it that way, but. That's the way I see it based on the conversations I've had with other development companies and people I've financed over the years. You come at it from more of a design, development, construction, physical side as opposed to the analytical financial side, it it appears to me. Even though I know you mentioned Kent and I know Kent, he's a very talented guy, but it seems to me that's the philosophy you're aiming. And and that, from what I gather, it seems a little bit different than what I've seen with other development firms, which can be an advantage, I would think, for you. Well, I think it, you know, I think it's an advantage in creating what works, mm-hmm. so that you know, we the it has to work financially. So I mean, we grind the numbers, but but by having, you know, for example, the Wegmans project in Alexandria. I mean, you know, if we were just running numbers, we wouldn't have gotten there, mm-hmm. but. By sitting there and, you know, the joke in the firms, I'm not allowed to have bum water trace paper because whatever I draw won't work. But, <laughs> you know, you start with an idea and you go, there's got to be a way to get Wegmans on the second floor. The numbers don't matter. If we, if we don't get Wegmans on the second floor, we're not doing the project because we're not creating a great place. It's just, it's just you know, we're just putting a large great retail on the ground and there's no interplay with walking on the sidewalk because the store's so big. You know, so figuring that out first allowed us to then get comfortable that, you know, we could support Wegmans and the rent they were 
willing to pay by bringing in great retail and shop space that, you know, we underwrote that they pay. And quite frankly, at that location, I think the retailers will pay in the future. And so, you know, it's the blending. And by having the disciplines a little bit separated, I do think has, has worked really well for us. You know, and so we, we, we hire and train, uh, and groom our, you know, finance people separately. Uh, we're trying an, a true analyst program for the first time because the group's gotten a little bit bigger, you know, and so we're, we're going to see if that really kind of will work on it. Bring them in, train them, you know, keep them for a couple of years and then send them off to business school or wherever they go. Could you expand a little bit on your corporate structure a little bit? You, you started to, so keep going. Sure. You know, so the way we're, we're set up, and this was a, a remnant of my old firm, uh, one of the really smart things in my mind the old firm did was kind of separate investments from the service company. So every deal we do in an SPE, but the, the company, Stonebridge, is not involved in the investment as an entity. So essentially, we have Stonebridge Associates, which is a service company. It was originally owned by Ellen Miller and I, and now I'm the sole owner of it. But all of my partners are are paid objectively. So you know, we we all share in the annual success of the service company, and so we're all very focused on every good decision we need to make as a group. And then the investments are held, you know, in separate entities, and therefore we can deal with. Everybody being invested in the deals, focused on the deals. And when people want to retire or leave or go do something else, it's a much simpler conversation. You're not valuing assets. You're not going through a lot of the things that are just hard to do. And, you know, honestly, people don't leave Stonebridge. I mean, okay, I've been around for a long time, but Jane's been happy, has been with us for over 25 years. Kaz and Kent have been with us for over 20. And Stephanie Duncan, our COO, who we actually call the coup, hasn't been with us as long because we brought her in. I think it's about a decade ago now we brought her in. That's the only reason you drag the average tenure of the partners down because we, we brought in a lateral partner uh, to help us really run the operations as the firm got bigger. And our employees have been with us a long time. And we are focused on ways to keep them and incent them and have them participate and be able to invest in deals as they've been with us longer. Because for us, it's not only about financial incentives, but we want to make sure people culturally fit. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you're going to be a partner in a deal, whether you have say or you don't have say, we want to make sure that you fit culturally with us. So we're, we're very slow and methodical. There's no, if you've been here 7.2 years, you're now eligible for this. What do you look for, Doug, in a, in a new employee? What, what, what characteristics do you look for? We really want smart people. We want, obviously, hardworking people. But we also look for people who have a balance. There's a lot that one needs to do to be successful. The firm doesn't do a tremendous amount of direct charity work, but almost everybody who's involved in the firm does a lot of charity work. They do it their, you know, they do it on their own time. They do it in their own ways. Some of it is, you know, I, I have a great passion for educational institutions. So I spend a lot of time doing that. Others have been involved in professional organizations. 
some have been involved in great charities. Uh, uh, Jubilee has been one that, you know, different members of the firm have been involved in over the years. And yeah, so we're really looking for well-rounded people. We're not trying to put people in a pigeonhole. We're very diverse uh, in terms of geographic, age, ethnicity, and, and we're very proud of that. And we have a lot of women, always have. I mean, my original partner at Stonebridge was Ellen Miller. And so, you know, we're very proud of our wide range of employees. So there isn't a one-size-fits-all. I think if I found one common trait is a commitment to doing the right thing and, and quality. And we're very proud of that. So tell me what happened to Ellen. Did she retire? or Ellen retired. She now lives uh, Smith Mountain Lake and uh, had just kind of gotten to the point where, you know, this is, I've been doing this a long time and her husband wanted to retire from the government and we all wondered how Ellen would do down on a lake by uh, close to city being run up and she just, she's as happy as can be and I couldn't be happier for her. So it's... Uh, we keep, you, in touch. we keep in touch. She's still got some interest in some old deals and, uh, you know, and it was a good example of why the structure of the firm worked because, you know, the, getting her, her ability to choose to retire wasn't all that complicated. So it worked out great. And you, you met her at, at Sweet. I mean, it's, you worked with her there, right? Yes. Originally. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So, you, you began talking about your volunteer priorities in the, uh, in the educational sector. How do you balance your life, Doug, among family work and giving back? How do you look at that? Yeah, I mean, and there's never enough time for any of it. I think one of the things, you know, I had parents who commuted to New York, but my parents made most of my games when I was a kid. My senior in college, uh, my mother was running the American Film Institute in Washington and L.A., and she made every single game. I don't know, how the, heck, I don't know how the heck she did it because we were all over the East Coast playing lacrosse games. And, you know, I, that's a, just a, something I learned from my parents. So, you know, one of my favorite days at the firm is Halloween because we have younger people and kids, and it's a ghost town at 3 o'clock. <laughs> and it's always been that way. It was when my kids were little. You know, so families... To me, by far and away, the most important thing. And uh, I've been married for over 30 years to uh, my favorite person, Suzanne. Got three great kids in their 20s. You know, very lucky man. And I didn't miss a game. I didn't miss a performance. You know, honestly, probably like 95%. And it was just a priority. And it, and it remains that way. Basically, what it meant for me is I just slept less. And, you know, luckily, I could survive on a little less sleep. <laughs> You know, and I've also felt it's important to give back. I mean, I've been doing volunteer work since I was in my 20s. I, you know, one little known fact is I spent 25 years coaching middle school travel lacrosse. Wow. Well, well before my, uh, I started coaching my son. I just, it was just great. I just loved coaching kids. I thought it was a great way to give back. I got very involved with Duke in my mid 20s. And, you know, one of the things I really was committed to is after the firm got out of the consulting business, and I really haven't done much consulting for probably over 15 years, was to get very involved with educational institutions. And my passion is local colleges. I was 
extraordinarily involved at Montgomery College for over a decade. Uh, was incredibly rewarding for me and things I did. A dear friend, Bill Hard, was very involved, and you know Bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did a lot of great things for the college. And and then I really felt I owed something for to the district. So uh, a few years ago, I've gotten very involved with the University of District of Columbia and really trying to help them and Ron Mason complete their turnaround after all the challenges that they faced. And there's just nothing more important than helping, in my mind, people get an education and places like Montgomery College and UDC are really helping those where you move the needle the most because they, you know, they don't have money. I mean, a lot of students don't go and finish at colleges like Montgomery College or UDC because they can't afford to pay for their books. I mean, they're that on the margin, you know, so raising a little money or helping them get a new building done has been great. So, you know, I have three priorities in my life. I work, I do maturity work, and then my most important one is family. And you just work hard to find them out and you just make the time and, and it's how you live a full life. And, and I have lived a very full life. I'm a very lucky man. That's great. You talked a little bit about some of your big, big wins in the past of, so looking back, let's, let's look at some of the things that you struggled with. What were some of the biggest failures? <laughs> and these uh, soften are the best stories. <laughs> yeah, well, you learned, we already talked about one. I mean, when the building in Chicago didn't know I loved it. And, uh, yeah. and you know, that was by far and away the biggest learning experience on, on all the good and the bad that we've done you know other lessons you know i think you know people we haven't made a lot of bad real estate decisions in my opinion i mean you know you certainly can't control all the forces but you know one of the lessons i've learned is it's it's dealing with people and you know in places where maybe i was doing something that i wasn't fully capable of but i just felt i could get my way through or asking people to do something they're not really capable of. And one of my favorite roles of the firm is the only time I'll be really upset if somebody doesn't get something done is because they didn't have time. And they got to raise their hand. And they got to say, look, I'm just, I'm too busy, whether it's, you know, overwhelmed at work or something at home. And, you know, that, that's the innocent time. There's also times, you know, you, you had faith in people and you were wrong. And, you know, so as you learn to assess, people's intention, their character, and their capability. You know, and when you get to this stage in my life, uh, one of the things I focus heavily on is I want to do good projects. I want to do it with good people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, who our partners are, who our teammates are, matter a lot. Because we want to do stuff with people we like, not just smart people, you know. So our newest venture is with uh, the Rockefeller Group. Um, the Lamada headquarters, and the relationship there was with Hillary Goldfarb, who we knew from her days at Bazudo. And you know, it's just fun. I mean, we're we're just enjoying it, you know. And you know, Rockefeller is an immensely capable group. Yes. And their DC office, you know, we only knew Hillary, but since Hillary hired the team, the odds were that <laughs> she would hire, you know, people she liked and was. I'm surprised you didn't try to recruit her. Yeah. I didn't know she was recruitable. It's probably sometimes, sometimes, you know, you make mistakes too. She's very good. Uh, she was yeah. in my mastermind group for a while. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, great lady. 
and just watching Hillary grow, you know, I'm, I'm old enough and much older than her. So I can, I can say, you know, you watch people and you watch how they've grown over time, but you know, and, and we're still not always right, but you know, this is a people, you know, the, we've got assets, the hard assets that's unusual in our business, but it's still people. And if people can't execute or people are unwilling to execute, you know, that's where we've continually had, you know, issues and problems. And we spend a lot of time trying to build relationships with everybody we do business with. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, if you have to take out the loan, the loan document or the venture document or the lease, that's usually not a good sign in the deal. No. To be able to call somebody up and say, Look, here's our problem. Here's how we're going to deal with it. What do you think's fair? And to be able to resolve it that way is, you know, a far better way to do business and you'll be far more successful. And you'll certainly sleep better at night. So two more questions. Uh, one is, uh, what is the most surprising event in your career that you can remember? Being wrong about the firm. You know, when I was 31 years old and thought I knew the right answer. And, you know, asking, telling my mentor if he left everything was going to be okay. And I'm being completely wrong. But then having him forgive me. I mean, you know, I can't thank him enough. If I was him, I would have never talked to me again. And, you know, he has been my mentor every day whenever I've needed anything. That's great. You know, so biggest surprise was being that wrong. Just good Lord. (laughs) You look back and you go, you were naive, young man. Well, my guess is that's his character showing through. And obviously, he taught you a lot from that perspective, it sounds like, which is excellent. Yeah, I'm very grateful. Because I think uh, one of the things you, you asked me about in terms of young people, I think the most important thing young people can do is get a mentor. I agree. And it's not a technical. I mean, it's great if they're also a business technical mentor. But having someone who you trust is really looking out for your interests, who's been around a long time, long time's in quotes, you don't have to be an old guy like me, who really got your interest in art, nothing better for a person in their 20s than to be mentored. And if that mentor can be at your work, I mean, it's a grand slam home run. And that's what I tell people when they look for their first job. Yeah, most important, go to a company with great culture, doing cool things that will mentor you. That's, uh, I can't agree more, Doug. In fact, it's the, one of the main reasons I'm so active with the, the Urban Land Institute is their mentor program. And I've been probably the most engaged mentor in the <laughs> Eli Washington. So I, I yeah, completely no. wholeheartedly agree with you. Well, and as you all know, we were deeply involved. Um, and it's one of the things that I think is wonderful uh, when you're talking about, you know, what people do to help. I mean, you know, several of my colleagues are very involved and we run we run everybody we can through that program because people like you take the time we love it to teach our teach these kids and there's just nothing better for them it's great so uh what advice would you give your 25 year old self today (laughs) besides find a really good mentor Um, (laughs) there there's uh, that could be it right there i mean i think it's you know look i've got the average age of my kids is 25 you know, so it's the advice I give my kids. The world's different. You know, the world has changed so much. You know, when I was 25, you got your bonus, you got your review, you said thank you, you went back to work. And, you know, the world was, you know, the world was simpler. There was more 
expectant loyalty in companies. Uh, the economy wasn't so complicated. And even before this pandemic, you know, with 20 plus percent unemployment, you know, the loyalty to companies, and as my mother made a point to me a long time ago, loyalty from companies to employees is just different. So I think if someone's 25 today, I do think understanding it's going to take a little while to get someplace. But getting great experiences along the way with great people is always going to benefit you in the long run. And if you have a bit of patience and you do the right thing and you work hard, ultimately you're going to get to a good place. But it, do, it just does take time. And the world's more structured than it used to be. So unfortunately, at most places, you do have to check a few boxes along the way. When you and I were young, the structure was lost. So if you could perform, you could move faster. It's a long game. Oh, that's a better way. So that was a very short and simple way of saying what I was trying to say. That is a long game. You're 25 years old. If you enjoy what you do, you shouldn't mind working for a while. So get great experiences along the way and, and enjoy yourself and do interesting things. Um, and take care of your parents because at my age, I have to start worrying about that now. <laughs> so, Doug, if you could post a, a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would that say? Actually, we are posting a seven-story tall sign on the uh, Clark Building next week. It says, thank you to our heroes. So, just timely, I would have had a different answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> six weeks ago, but uh -huh. we have to appreciate what people have done for us in the last two months. No it's, question. It's breathtaking. And we had a great debate about should you define heroes, honestly. You know, should it say medical heroes or essential? And we decided to just put up heroes. That's, that's good. So, so that everybody who, who feels they've contributed you know, from, I mean, the medical workers. It's just a grocery store clerk. But a, you hit it. A grocery store clerk, a delivery person, someone who's, you know, helping you just do something so those of us who aren't on the front line can function. So we're putting up a big sign that says, thank you to our heroes. We're proud to be your neighbor. That's great. So that, so that is my sign. It's not on the Beltway, but I'll be right at the Bethesda Metro Station. That's in about, in about just about as visible. <laughs> Well, Doug, on that note, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it very much. And uh, we will uh, look forward to seeing you down the road. And I thank you for, the, for your time today. Thank you for your time. And I look forward to when we can all do this in person again soon. <laughs> <laughs>